2021 Journalist of the Year from the American Conservative Union at CPAC 2015. You like me right now. You like me. He's Jim Garrity. How do you like me now? She's a front-page contributor to Red State and a broadcast professional who calls life the way she sees it. Yeah! Crank up the radio! Very interesting! She's Mickey White. How do you like me now? This is the Jim and Mickey Show. Welcome to the Jim and Mickey Show, brought to you by the National Church of Bay. Do you ever feel confused, lost, like you're still looking for your life's meaning, we assure you that you too can walk in the forest of truth and reach a deeper level of understanding. All you have to do is join us in the National Church of Bay and accept Beyonce as your Lord and Savior. Deities often walk the earth in their flesh form, and Beyonce will transcend back to the Spirit once her work here on Mother Earth has been completed. Remember to read your Babel and join us in National Church of Bay. I am Jim Garrity, joined by Mickey White, and welcome to the post-Grammys edition of the Jim and Mickey Show. Mickey, I want to salute you for the tweet of the night when you were watching uh, the Holy Mother Beyonce looking extremely pregnant in her musical number, which wasn't really a singing one. It was more of a methodic, melodic, monotone, cult-like narration (laughs) over the fancy balancing on the chair and something, and you pointed out, you said what was on everybody's mind. Even for Beyonce, this is a lot. <laughs> yeah, it was a. It was. Um, hi, everyone, and welcome back. Uh, glad to be here. As glad that I survived the Grammys and the outrage that always comes along with it. This this time for a multitude of reasons. One of the best things coming out of the Grammys, of course, was Beyonce's performance. And the the thing I want to say right now, Jim, is that it was in fact a performance. It was really something that people were talking about um now whether it was good whether it was bad whether it was a scene from a late 60s lsd inspired movie i'm not sure it did give a vibe vaguely like the um the the cart ride in willy wonka and the chocolate factory the 1960s version with gene wilder um now mickey let me put this okay if i say Beyonce's uh, public adoration has always seemed a little cult-like. Am I on fair ground, or will I be taken away by the? Or, uh, will I be called a hater and dismissed as a crotchety old fogey? And then you know, I think the important thing to note is that you know by saying that you're going to be swarmed by the Bayhive. There we go. And so These here's a fan. So I think that the question answers itself. I was going to say the existence of the Bayhive affirms the the assertion, right? You know. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Like, they confirm their own existence. Uh, so, yes, there is a cult-like following to these people, but it's not something that's terribly new. Um, we, we saw this with Elvis. We saw this with the Beatles. There were girls that would pass out and cry and faint at the sight of them. Okay. So, this idea, I mean, we, ha- we called them idols. Um, we call them rock stars for a reason. You know, they are held above other people. Well, I think the okay. real definition of a cult, though, is people who get mad when you call them a cult and i'm not sure a lot of beatles or elvis fans would get mad about that they probably wouldn't even understand it but maybe the bayhive would get a little irritated to be called a cult i don't know i'm just asking dave that's a perfectly fair point i don't know if previous performers um ever played to the image quite the way beyonce is doing and i think when you come out on stage looking like the goldfinger donald trump version of the virgin mary (laughs) 
all in gold, like like the Statue of Liberty dipped in solid gold and coming out. Um, and she pre- was wearing a crown. Jeez. And then she had people <laughs> bow down to her. And in the point uh, that you kind of glossed over that was by far the highest drama for me of the night, which was when the very pregnant Beyonce was tilted back in a mechanical chair and literally my heart stopped. As she was lifted off the ground, and I'm watching, and I'm like, please don't fall, please don't fall. That's all I could think about, literally, until she was back down on the ground. <laughs> and I know I wasn't alone in this. I think collectively, America was like, just put her back down, just put her back down. Um, as a fan of Beyonce, I, I like her music. I enjoyed Lemonade. I, I enjoy it. It's not like you get tired of music that you like. Um, I enjoyed what she did visually uh, with her special I don't understand what I saw the other night. I'm going to stick to this. There was a moment as I'm watching it, and I thought, am I high? I didn't smoke anything. (laughs) What's in this drink? I made this drink myself. And then I realized other people online were having the same reaction. And it was, it was again, it was so, and, and of course, by this point, most people have either seen it or seen clips of it. So you get the gist that. This was a visual experience, and it was, in fact, a performance. And in many ways, she won the night because of it, because everyone's still talking about her performance, barely a mention to who even won the actual awards. Jim, I think Mickey's giving herself roofies again. We're going to have the talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so even with the, <laughs> I had to check. Even with the roofies, Mickey, I, I have to give you credit. I think you came up with one of these sharper observations the morning after when we were talking about uh, – I think it was a tribe called Quest, and they had this very overtly political performance denouncing Donald Trump, calling him Agent Orange. But you pointed out that there was a qualitative difference between what they did and, say, Meryl Streep lecturing us during an awards ceremony. And lay that out for our listeners because I think they need to hear this. Well, I think the it was something that I included in my Grammys rap uh, for a blog post over at Red State, plug, plug. Um, but it was something that I thought about as watching it. Why wasn't I as annoyed with, with a tribe called quest? Why wasn't I annoyed with Busta Rhymes for coming out and being overtly political? I mean, and again, you know, Busta Rhymes was actually the one who started chanting president agent orange and, you know, it was very catchy. I may have chanted along and I realized as I was watching it, it was because it was part of that performance. It was part of their art, if you will. Um, They're, they're known for social justice. Uh, It's kind of that rebellion side of hip hop and, and social justice side of hip hop, kind of like we see in rock and roll as well. There's a certain kind of, you know, against the man feeling to it that's good. I, I like a certain amount of rebellion in my performances. Um, and it was, and again, part of it is that it was very fitting and very appropriate. It, unlike Meryl Streep, who is standing up there at a time where she is supposed to be giving an acceptance speech and saying thank you, um, it, where it feels very inappropriate. I was going to say, you, you put the, difference between, the, the finger on the difference between a performance and a speech and I was thinking about that, and I think there's kind of maybe much, a much broader implication to this, that we're all going to see some Hollywood TV or movie star say something politically that we disagree with. Um, if you're on the left, maybe Adam Baldwin drives you crazy or Clint Eastwood speaking at the Republican convention a few years back. Uh, certainly you're going to have more uh, Hollywood left-of-center types outsp- you know, being very outspoken in their beliefs. A musician, like when Bruce Springsteen goes off and says, yeah, we've got to stand up for the working class or whatever – we're, we're all, that's all kind of built into Bruce Springsteen's image and brand and idea and everything you think about him. When a Hollywood actor comes out and does that, then in the next movie, you might have to see them as, you know, 
leading the SEAL team or something like that. And it, that I, my suspicion is, is that the more a Hollywood yes. actor does something that annoys you, it sticks with you. So the next time you see them as the, the Navy SEAL or whatever they're supposed to be playing in their next movie, you can't quite see them as disappearing into the park the way they could because you already have that in the back of your mind. That's the guy who said that thing that really annoyed me. And well, that's and, and why it's more dangerous it, for actors to be political than it is for musicians. I, I would agree with you. I also think that when you're dealing with an actor, the, the best actors that we know, the ones that we truly appreciate, disappear into the role, right? And if your face becomes one of activism and of taking a certain political stance, one of your key attributes of being a great actor is taken away is your ability to pretend to be something you're not. Yeah, I, I think the more outsp- you know, outspoken you get, um, the more you become associated with that in the audience's mind. And it's just not... Uh, easy to put it put aside. Um, I'm sure there are some. I understand there's some Firefly fans like, oh, Adam Baldwin is ruined. I can't. I can't like the character of Jane because of his conservative stances. Um, my argument is, if you're conservative, you decide you don't like any Hollywood actor who's liberal. You end up mostly watching documentaries. I think that's one of the problems Tom Cruise has with these Jack Reacher movies. You know, especially the second one. I really like the movies. I like the character. I love the novels. But Tom Cruise is too well known to me. As a person who advocates for uh, strange stuff like that uh, bizarre church of his and, and has misadventures in the showbiz media. So Tom Cruise is larger than the part. I, I think this falls into a lot of different categories. You think of Susan Sarandon and some of her best roles. It's where, you know, she pays kind of sexy Susan Sarandon, kind of ditzy Susan Sarandon. That almost plays into her brand of being a crazy activist. Yeah, I, let me just point out, Dave, as much as I would agree with you, the idea of Cruz getting political might get in the way of Jack Reacher. Um, let's not ignore the fact that he's like, what, 5'7"? <laughs> Jack Reacher's like my size. <laughs> well, my, I, I was going to say, my problem with Cruz probably is the fact that he is Tom Cruise. Regardless <laughs> of what he's in, it, it, he has to work against the prototype of being himself. It's all-encompassing, isn't it? Yeah, and I, just, I think you just don't have that same issue when you're a musician, right? I mean, you can be singing about love or anger or any one of these things that we never really have to buy into the idea of the musician being a different person. I mean, I, I, I kind of cringe when I see Britney Spears doing a video about how hard it is to be a waitress because I know Britney Spears has never spent a day of her life being a waitress, but it seems to be less of an issue because it, for the purposes of a song, you're not expected to believe, oh, I think this person is someone else the same way you are with you know, visual performances like television. Well, let's not forget that musicians have talent. Like actual quantifiable talent. They can sing, they can dance, they create a performance art, they can play their instruments. Actors, again, you know, God love them, but they are they are the one art form, I suppose, that is truly subjective in the sense that you have to decide if you like the actor as a person or you like the actor as the character or just their development of it. Again, acting is playing pretend. So while they often like to exult their virtues, it's not like they're going to have Meryl Streep come on stage and perform a scene by herself live at the Oscars. That's not going to happen. Well, just think about you know, people will see the edge or slash or somebody playing a guitar, or Billy Joel playing piano, you know, somebody who's like a really amazing as a musician and say, wow, I wish I could do that. We see somebody running around on a screen and we say, oh, I could do that. 
You know, like it's easier to project ourselves onto that uh, when they're just quote unquote acting. In fact, the more natural it seems, the more likely it is uh, we believe we could do that. We can project ourselves into them uh, than we can with somebody demonstrating a musical ability that we simply could not emulate. Well, instead of just projecting ourselves into our actors and actresses, we're going to talk about all the time-traveling TV that's been hitting the airways as of late. I'm Mickey White. He's Jim Garrity. You're listening to The Jim and Mickey Show, and we'll be right back. When that sun breaks out, lift up your head and shout, it's going to be a great day. Kellogg's waits for you, that spirit comes shining through, promising you a great day. Old Spice means quality, said the captain to the bosun, so ask for the package with the ship that sailed the ocean. Here's a fellow who looks and feels like the top of the morning. Mm -hmm. That's because he's starting his day the Old Spice way. Old Spice aftershave lotion. The happiest ending a shave ever had. And it's good for your skin. Makes your face wake up. Tingles it to a clean, fresh feeling. Fresh as the spray of the surf. And you'll really like that good, tangy Old Spice scent. Bright and bracing as an ocean breeze. Now what does all this luxury cost? Just one dollar. And never did a dollar bring you so much. So add spice to your life. Get Old Spice Aftershave Lotion by Schulten. Just one of many famous Old Spice grooming aids for men. That's Old Spice Aftershave Lotion from the laboratories of Schulten. Here's mucus. We'll be up all night. Welcome back. I'm Mickey White along with Jim Garrity. And one of the things that we have been noticing has been a quantum leap, if you will, into... A ton of shows that are on TV right now that are focused around time travel, the ability to travel back in time, travel forward in time, and change the outlook of time. And Jim, you've been taken in by one specifically, Legion, that has been kind of all over the media after the first episode, after the second episode, and, and so you're kind of smitten as well. Well, okay, so I'm I'm intrigued might be the better uh, word here. And I'll point out, look, this is Legion, which is, I'm going to say, very loosely based on the X-Men comics and one character. Um, it's, it's very different from anything we've seen in the X-Men movies. Um, but what's really sticking with me, and I really kind of want to throw out for our listeners here, I've been thinking about time periods and, and setting in storytelling. And I've, I've come up with, there are four different approaches. And I think one of the great flaws in Legion is that it goes with the fourth approach. But let me run through them. Sometimes you can have a show or a movie that is very precise about the time it's taking place in. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I got to catch The Nice Guys, uh, the detective movie with Ryan Gosling and uh, Russell Crowe. Very like, obsessed with emphasizing this movie is taking place in 1977. Every prop, every costume, makeup, everything is saying this is the 1970s. Um, it's, it's like one step away from being Austin Powers making fun of the 60s. But Stranger um, Things did that well. Yes. By you know, setting so- solidly in the 80s and staying true to it. Exactly. Then you have some shows that are in a general area, a general time period, but they're not that specific. Um, ABC has a comedy called The Goldbergs that takes place in the 80s. Um, if you watch it closely and you live through it, <clears throat> not to seem old, you begin to notice things that don't quite fit um, music taking place in an episode. There was an episode that was supposed to take place during Reagan's re-election in 84. And I'm listening to the music and I'm like, that, that's late 80s music in a scene taking place in 1984. Maybe I'm the only kind of person who wor- gets you know, worked up about this. But it seems to me it's very, 
you, you can do something that's just in a generic 80s time period, and you're not that precise about it. Um, the third option, which is pretty rare but kind of funny when they do it, is the deliberately anachronistic. Um, I think Archer, the show on FX, is pretty good about this, and it's got 80s technology, 60s and 70s fashion, and very modern pop culture references. Um, and they're very open about this, and at one point somebody says to Archer, come on, Archer, what year is it? And he responds, I know, right? The idea that not, not even the characters know what year this, this story is taking place. There you go. And then there's Legion, which comes along, and they, you know, within a few moments of watching this, you pick up that this takes place in the past, but we're not really going to be sure exactly when it is. It's very 60s, 70s. Everything is bright orange. Um, they describe it as retrofuturism, the kind of things you might see in a Stanley Kubrick film or something like that. And I think it kind of gets in the way. And I don't know if it's, you know, maybe I'm the only person who got kind of hung up on this. And it seems really 60s, 70s-ish. I don't um, think you're the only one who got hung up on it. Because as yeah. I said, I, I read a ton of articles on Legion this week. And every one of them, um, the, after the first episode, there was mass confusion um, and some irritation. And, but people felt like, you know, by the second episode, it was worth hanging on. Yeah, it's an extremely distinctive artistic vision. Obviously, a good portion of the show is the main character seems to be mentally ill. Now, we in the audience know this is a show about the X-Men, and we know that he's a mutant, and we know he has powers. But the question is, what part of what he's seeing and perceiving is his powers, and what part is genuine mental illness, and the idea that he has these hallucinations and things that don't make sense and things like that. And it's a, on the one hand, it makes it very gripping, on the other hand, Mickey, you know me. You know I'm the diehard Twin Peaks fan. You know I have a really high tolerance for surreal and weird and dreamlike. Mm-hmm. Just like you said with Beyonce, this is a lot. <laughs> Legion, this is a lot. This is a lot to put, you know, you're, you're yeah. really straining my ability to handle crazy dream sequences and hypnotic LSD trippy uh, images and things like that. In fact, between Beyonce's performance and Legion, this was a big week for LSD. <laughs> well, you know, pot is legal in more states every day. So, you know, again, it's an intri- the other thing, I guess it, for an ordinary story, it might not be such a big deal. But look, people are going to tune into Legion because they like the X-Men movies, they like the X-Men comics. And at the core of the stories of these comics is the idea of, look, mutants are being born, people have powers, well, question one, does the public know about it? Or is this still some big secret? And that kind of was really vaguely glided over in the first episode. And the second thing is, does the government know about it? And that's certainly seen by the end of the episode. We have what a, did they like, know and when did they know it? Yeah, there you go. You know, it was a, it's a, by, by minute 60, we have a slightly better idea of that. But I'd say for the first half hour to 45 minutes, you're thrown into this and you have no idea uh, first of all, what year it is, um, what, you know, whether he's a mutant, whether he's hallucinating, all this kind of stuff, whether there are other mutants, do the X-Men exist yet? I mean, all kinds of stuff that just seems, you know, you're, a lot gets thrown at viewers in a very short period of time. And so I, I'm, not, I'm not quitting on the show yet. I'm not really ready to commit either. Um, the, the show, Legion and I, are we're, we're just casually dating. That's how I feel about <laughs> Riverdale. Ah, Okay. Um, I have started watching Riverdale after we discussed it on the show a few weeks ago. For those of you unfamiliar with it, it's the real-life reenactment. Um, I, I shouldn't say reenactment because as far as I can tell, it's based on the Archie comics, but not really. There is an Archie. There is a Veronica. There's a Betty. Um, Jughead? There's a Jughead. Right. 
Um, all of the major characters are represented, even the teachers. But let's just say they're nothing like you remember them being in the comics. <laughs> the real true uh, Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm probably not the target audience. However, again, these are the people who won my heart with Gossip Girl, so I'm always willing to give their new shot, new shows a try. And in this case, I, I got through the first two episodes, and I wanted to see what happened in the third. I haven't gotten there yet. However, um, it, it's very different than I anticipated. It's uh, I, I don't even know if I'd say it's Twin Peaksy weird. It's much. It's almost pushing daisies weird. Uh, if if you if our listeners are familiar with that, where it's a surreal situation. Um, they kind of toned it back after the pilot, so I'm going to be interested to see how they further develop that if it gets picked up. Because it was you know the overdone Archie red hair. The overdone makeup, uh, all of that. But the the actual silhouettes, the kind of interesting part of it is you talk about a cinematic or something that you actually see visually coming to life through these cartoon characters is that, you know, obviously this was done in an original comic strip character. This takes it back a little further than even what we think of as, you know, cartoon characters. Mm -hmm. And they have very specific and memorable silhouettes. Something that the artistic design or artistic director of, of this show obviously takes very, very seriously. Because in the first, um, at least first couple episodes, that's something that they draw upon. There are silhouettes created and imagery created that even though everything about this entire very screwed up little town is nothing like the comic strips, it still is reminiscent of it in some ways. Mm. Archie secretly colors his hair and wears women's clothes at night. <laughs> well, he is banging one of his teachers. They so got secrets. Not. They got secrets. Yeah, I, I almost. This is a case where not being terribly attached to the original subject, uh, uh, the, the original material. I don't mind the idea of updating it. And look, in a world where you know it seems like you're seeing some uh, storyline about teachers doing things with students, you know, every other day. And, of course, we have extraordinarily different reactions when it's a male teacher going with a younger female student versus a female teacher and a younger male student. And we can, that's another topic uh, for another my, show. Say, one of my other shows that I adore that is coming to an end is Pretty Little Liars. And one of their first storylines involved a main character who was a male teacher having an affair with a student. And it was extremely accepted among the audience and among her friends. Oh, wonderful. The taboo is broken for both of them. Um, so here we go. But uh, the, it does seem like, look, if, if there was a Riverdale, uh, if it reflected the, you know, some would say the decay, some would just say the rapid changes in American culture over the last two, two generations, maybe what we see in the CW series uh, Riverdale is more akin to what we would expect to that. And we could, you know, argue about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, it probably is a bad thing in real life, but makes for a more interesting television show. Um, particularly when you wrap it in this, as you said, this alternating neon versus dark moody uh, kind of visual aesthetic. Uh, yes, absolutely. And, and that's a great way to describe it. I think the other thing that draws to mind, it was we were talking about the time. And, and in this particular case, once again, the time feels very fluid. And part of that is done through their costumes and some obviously artistic choices that they've made to present them in kind of throwback gear. But they have cell phones. Um, they have social media. So, again, it's kind of a blended reality. Uh, definitely not an attempt to make it feel specifically real. 
I remember uh, obviously being the obsessive Twin Peaks fan I am, that, that Mark Frost and David Lynch visually wanted to make the show as timeless as possible. So a lot of the characters have one or two distinctive outfits, and the aim was to, it was you know, filmed in 1989 and 1990 uh, into 1991, and they were trying really hard to not make anything that would make you say, aha, it's taking place in this time period. Um, that worked for a long while, and then one of the subsequent directors didn't pay attention to this. Mm. And Mickey, a character, appears in full Air Jordan Nike sweatsuit. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Shades of 1991. <laughs> You, you can pay. You can pen that pretty much down to the month. That's uh, uh, and so you. I, that doesn't always work. The other thing, which I, I feel sympathetic for anyone trying to create something visually timeless, computers are, are just going to kill you every time. <laughs> because man, they have they have uh, uh, computers on their desks that are the size of microwaves. <laughs> oh my god, it, it's stri- it's absolutely striking to look back at some of the things that were done at the time in the 1980s. Uh, one of the things that comes on late at night is Mercy wrote and immediately after it, Heart to Heart. We could do an entire segment on Heart to Heart's technology. And that movie called The Net. <laughs> Don't forget The Net, which was supposed to be a super updated high technology thriller. <laughs> yes. They, up, they uploaded it through the dark net, yeah. uh, as, uh, as Ice-T said on an infamous episode of Law and Order. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, you know, times are changing. Uh, we'll think back to one of our, our, you know, we may feel a little bit like time travel in our last segment, because yes, we're taking another look at Fifty Shades with the sequel in theaters right after this. I'm not very good at this. I've never wanted to try again. Have dinner with me. Okay, fine. I will have dinner with you because I'm hungry. But we are only talking, and that is it. Oh, I gotcha! Uh huh! Uh huh! Introducing Popeye's all new comic strip glasses. Yours to keep when you buy a 69 cent soft drink. Hello, ladies. Look at your man. Now back to me. Now back at your man. Now back to me. Sadly, he isn't me. But if he stopped using ladies' scented body wash and switched to Old Spice, he could smell like he's me. Look down. Back up. Where are you? You're on a boat with the man your man could smell like. What's in your hand? Back at me. I have it. It's an oyster with two tickets to that thing you love. Look again. The tickets are now diamond. Anything is possible when your man smells like Old Spice and not a lady. I'm on a horse. Hi, I'm Mike Wallace with a sensational shortening discovery for better baking and frying. It's Procter & Gamble's Golden Fluffle. <laughs> Welcome back to the Jim and Mickey Show. I am Jim Garrity, joined by Mickey White. Long-time listeners will remember one of our most fun segments came a couple years back when I actually went to see Fifty Shades on Valentine's Day with Mrs. Campaign Spot and came back to report entirely aside from whatever you think of the sexual practices in the film. It is a shitty, shitty, shitty movie. <laughs> <laughs> Don't candy go to brother. Tell us how you really feel. It, it was astounding. And here's the thing. And I felt like it really got let off the hook for all of its utter, complete, total failures in that because everybody was arguing about the, the kinky sex stuff in it. And I'm like, well, Wait, and because it did so well at the box office. Nah, but you need, you know, my argument would be like, for as, as you know, not to record, we go over everything we thought about the film, but just observing that the, the chemistry was awful. Um, the entire, as I pointed out and was enjoying re- reminding people this week, um, the only difference between Christian Grey and the performance that Jamie Dornan is giving and the typical stalker in a Lifetime movie, <laughs> you know, movie of the week, is the lighting. 
Yes. That, that is the line of the week right there because you're absolutely right. There is absolutely nothing about uh, Christian Grey, the character, the delivery, or anything that doesn't come off as just a wee bit creepy. And, um, you know, we did discuss in the last show that, you know, Christian Grey couldn't just be rich. He had to be a billionaire. And for some reason this week it really struck you that he had a lot of free time on his hands. That's what and got that bothered me. you too. Yes, and here's the thing. And people are going to say, "Wait, that's what?" Yes, but here's the thing. Because yes, I realize this is a fairy tale. This is a woman's fantasy. Of course, he's going to be perfect in every way. But to me, it's like it's not just like it's not just that he's rich. He's a billionaire, and not only is he a billionaire, he's a self-made billionaire. Okay, you want to you know you want him to admit he has a work ethic or something. But he's the kind of safe self-made billionaire who never actually works. And who is somehow extremely successful yet can drop everything and take him and take her in her glider plane and fly on the helicopter and all that kind of stuff. You are the same person who would say to me that we don't have enough erotic thrillers, that we need to bring those back. And to some degree, isn't that what they're trying to do with Shades Darker is it's more of the, you know, twisty, scary thing. Um, And, you know, it's, it's just one of those things where this movie could be the nine and a half weeks of its time. Uh, but I'd rather see won't. Mickey Rourke as Christian Grey than this guy. No, because you know why it won't? Because millennials would be too afraid that someone was allergic to the strawberries that he was feeding. <laughs> someone is writing a comedy right now. When they try to reenact nine and a half weeks. Somebody has a terrible allergic reaction. Can't get the handcuffs undone. EMS has to be called. You you could write a phenomenal, epic, embarrassing sex comedy about that. No. Um, so here's the problem. I can't give you a full review of Fifty Shades Darker because Mrs. Campaign Spot doesn't want to pay money to see it because she thinks. <laughs> and based on the first one, I can't really argue her out of that and try to explain. No, honey, I, we need to watch it so I can make fun of this movie. Isn't really uh, isn't really mo- motivating her for this. So I have far. an anecdote, so. by the way, a report that there is still shame out there in the general public. I went to the movies yesterday and saw John Wick 2 and the lady in front of me in line was also by herself and buying a ticket and she was blocking the computer screen from me. I stood behind her. I moved to the left. She moved. I moved to the right. She moved. And then when she finally got her paperwork and left, I saw she had bought a ticket to Fifty Shades Darker. So she was definitely, (laughs) definitely trying to conceal what she had done from me, the stranger standing behind her at the theater. So there is still shame. I did not pay to see it in the theaters. I did see it when it came out on HBO. I feel like that should be a segment of the show, by the way. When it comes out on HBO or Showtime or Netflix, because that's when, like, another bulk part of the population actually What's worth watching that you don't have to pay money for? There you go. That's our, yeah. Yeah, and, 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 you know, these are the, these are the things that, you know, kind of happen. But anyway, long story short, um, I, I have not seen Darker yet. I will see it when it comes out on demand. Um, and I, I think that speaks volumes about the fact that I, I really initially didn't think I'd watch the first one at all. After you told me about it, I had to watch it. Yeah, I, it was one of those like hate watches, but then I ended up being amused because it wasn't as bad as I had pictured. It was bad. I mean, it was really bad, but I felt it to be almost good bad. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I would put it in that category of you're watching it and you think, wow, this is terrible. Uh, there has to have been better takes than this. This can't yeah, be the good like, version. Yeah, and, and you find yourself, it's much like my experience with The Bachelor, I find myself talking back to the TV more and more through these things. <laughs> so an observation about what we've seen in the trailers and the basic plot line for Darker, 
right? So one, you know, we had pointed out one of the major failures of the first movie was getting us to like either one of the romantic protagonists to the point where I found myself wondering, hey, what are their roommates doing? Because they seem to be hitting it off and seem to be more interesting. <laughs> and so the plot of the second one is using one of the easiest tools in storytelling. And probably it's, it's almost a cheat, which is bringing in bad alternatives for the two romantic protagonists. He's got a stalker X, which, oh, by the way, that's setting a high bar when you've already made your main character to behave like a stalker so much. Uh, she's got a harassing boss. Oh, no, there, there's a bad male figure. Uh, <laughs> Basinger is in as one of his exes, and it just is like, oh, basically, just bring in Bill Pullman already, right? This is the poor actor <laughs> who keeps being brought in to play the wrong guy in every romantic comedy. And it just seemed like such a... Oh, I know, audience, you're not really a big fan of either one of our protagonists, but look at all these other horrible characters. Aren't you glad they're not involved with them? Bill Pullman is still smarting from having played the romantic lead to uh, Ellen DeGeneres. That's it. <laughs> he actually did that in a movie back in the 80s, played a romantic lead to Ellen DeGeneres before she came out. Wasn't that called Mr. Wrong? Yes, and it's it gone now. You can't movie. see it anymore it anywhere. It was a god-awful movie at the time, and I actually enjoy Ellen DeGeneres. It was just a god-awful movie. Jim, I'm sorry. I completely diverted like the Oroville Dam. <laughs> sorry <laughs> about that. Let's get back to where you were. That was more interesting. No, I, just, I think you make a really fair point that for some inexplicable reason, people just weren't all that into the idea of a heterosexual romantic comedy starring Ellen DeGeneres. It just didn't bring out the plausibility that they were looking for in that. Okay, I, I'm going to go back to Fifty Shades Darker for just a second. I think one of the key elements of the story, we need to give it credit, is that they actually develop something, the difference between kind of feeling dangerous and being dangerous. Because a lot of the, you know, the former obviously took a lot of heat from the, the people who like to, you know, get upset about these things and throw fits about how people have sex and whatnot and decided that, you know, some of this was too dark and too dirty, if you will. Um, and, and the proponents of the book suggest that, no, this is, you know, this is normal. This is healthy in an adult consensual relationship. And there is a dark side. And now they're presenting that as a foil to their, their kind of like fun fantasy danger in comparison to real danger. So maybe the plot will actually thicken. <laughs> well, all right. Let me make a point out, Mickey, that I'd argue whether you're measuring it by the books or measuring it by the movie. In fact, I'm going to say let's use, use the, the movie as the measuring stick. The sex might be the least unhealthy thing going on between these two. <laughs> yes, right. Considering like, all the other ways in which, you know, <laughs> certainly the way he treats her. Um, but I think, you know, here's it. When we're talking about seriously abusive relationship, don't you think the dialogue in this movie abuses the English language? And in fact, for this, we can throw in the books because um, – yeah, I, I, I'm, you know, Again, and I'm, it is fan fiction. What do you expect? Well, you don't usually make hundred million dollar blockbusters out of fan fiction. Twilight fan who developed these characters, and you know, and produced these characters, and women across America, and apparently men too, really liked it. They liked the dirty talk. No, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm not talking dirty talk, although I'm talking even the regular dialogue is painful. No, no, you've you already had told me you'd looked at some of them. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna take I'm gonna take the dominant role right now, Mickey. Give me quote thirteen. <laughs> Let our listeners know just how awful, just how trite and insufferable the dialogue is in in Fifty Shades of Grey. Yes, master. <laughs> <laughs> you really cracked a whip on you that time, <laughs> mm. Christian. You are the state lottery. 
the cure for cancer, and the three wishes from Aladdin's lamp all rolled into one. Mickey, why did Anastasia have to call Christian the state lottery? Why? Because Powerball has a much worse resonance. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. That might have made that little piece of dialogue bearable. I'm going to now take a quote directly from the book because you guys need to understand it's all about my inner goddess apparently if I were to read the book and my inner goddess sits in the lotus position looking serene except for the sly self-congratulatory smile on her face and suddenly I'm picturing those people with the vaginas on their heads <laughs> that you know who could deliver that line Mickey, hmm. Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that sounds like a, lo- a promotional line from the Goop catalog, right there. That, you know. Oh, oh, I want. I, I would like to share this literary classic with you. <clears throat> yeah. He's my very own Christian Grey flavored popsicle. <laughs> oh, of all the marketing tie-ins they could have tried. Oh dear God! <laughs> Where was Jello putting pops on this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's it. They already tried Bill Cosby. Their marketing fortunes are pretty poor. I'm going to stand by. Like, I I guess the faux attempts at sophistication that that really get me. The line, you beguile. Now, you know, here's if you've ever wanted to hear me read aloud lines of dialogue from Fifty Shades, this is your chance, people. (laughs) You beguile me, Christian. Completely overwhelm me. I feel like Icarus flying too close to the sun. She knows how that story ends, right? Well. I'm going to go with no. <laughs> Icarus comes crashing down to Earth. It's not a happy ending. It's not, it's not romantic. To, oh, this is awesome. This is, yeah. I, would like to, I would like you to read uh, the line number one highlighted. And I want to also point out that this is a line on romance, according to uh, Quiz Zine, the place I pulled this from. Oh, this is on romance, and I'd like Jim to read it in the style of Christian Grey. All right. Every time you move tomorrow, I want you to be reminded that I've been here. <laughs> Only me. You are mine. This is the yoga class you will never forget. <laughs> I added that last part. I am dead. I am telling move, you right? right now, if somebody said that to my face, <laughs> okay, I would be so gone. Like I would be like, call the cops, gone. I'd be like the little girl who sees the twins and they, in the new Allstate commercial, gone. Well, this producer says, thank God the segment has come to an end. Okay, Powerball, wrap us up. I just want to say to all of our listeners... We'll be right back after this. But remember, I want to chase the dawn with you. <laughs> I don't know if Christian Gray has noticed this, but you actually, the dawn will come no matter what you do. You don't have to chase it. That sun's coming up one way or the other. We'll be right back. You're just going to stand there gawking? Yes. You got me looking so want, Anastasia? This time... No rules, no punishments, and no more secrets. Hey, hey! You can feel uneasy about your bathroom. The best fresh ingredients are what make Betty Crocker potato dishes taste so good. Marsha, what happened? Peter hit me in the nose with a football. I can't go to the desk like this. Well, I'm sure it was an accident, sweetheart. An eye for an eye. That's what Dad always says. 
I never said that, honey. Shut up! Got to teach Peter a lesson. Marsha, eat a Snickers. Why? You get a little hostile when you're hungry. Better? Better. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Jan, this isn't about you. <laughs> it never is! <laughs> Welcome back to the Jim and Mickey show. I'm Mickey White. And one of the things that Jim and I are both getting ready for right now is the annual CPAC convention. And it's held in National Harbor this year. We've gone the last two years together and, and we've had, you know, arguably some of the best best years of CPAC under our belt already. Um, so it's kind of an interesting time of year where like everyone gets together. It's put on by the American Conservative um, Union and uh, it's a huge event. We've talked about it on the show before, but it's not really about the politics that we're really thinking about today, is it, Jim? It isn't. And probably, you know, it, it's uh, uh, I, I should always be very grateful to them. They named me their reporter of the year two years ago, a great honor. But I find as this one approaches, to me it's more about seeing the people who will be there who don't always come to the D.C. area, uh, don't always get a chance to see. So yeah, there'll be enormous amounts of big politics. But you and I, uh, obviously being interested in podcasting, um, Radio Row is where you will see the absolute biggest names rubbing shoulders with uh, stations you've never heard of, hosts you've never heard of, all in one place. Mm-hmm. And we've already got the plan. Like you, you've already strategized um, how we're supposed to grab guests and just yank them over to the microphone. Is that the game plan Dave yes. was recommending? Yeah. Yes. That is it. You know, we've, we've been very fortunate. We, we've been very fortunate in some of our like impromptu guests that we've had up there in previous shows that we've done for um, other other stations, not really specifically for T-Jams. Um, but what we're looking forward to this year is actually trying to put together a live show up there. There will be a live T-Jams that we will be able to then interact with the guests and the people come out. Gets to get a little bit crazy on the ground. Um, so I think that's going to be fun. And uh, I, yes, I do plan on, you know, when we need to do what they call what we're going to call, well, they do call them the grabs and grab people literally just off the street and, and out of these conference rooms and talk to them about T-Jams and people hopefully will come and find us and let us know if they are a listener of the show and uh, and maybe have an opportunity to actually sit down and talk with us there live at CPAC. Yeah. Hey, look, there, there, are, there have been good segments and, and good guests and you never know what you're going to, circumstance you're going to end up with. Uh, a couple of years ago, I ended up interviewing Kevin Sorbo, a a.k.a. television's Hercules. Uh, he was doing a, a movie about human trafficking and obviously wanted to promote that and thought there'd be a, a good sympathetic audience at CPAC. I also seem to remember a few years ago, uh, you talk about trying to grab guests. Somebody at National Review, we were set up trying to do podcasts for, for NR, and they want, Ben Carson walked by. Oh, and yes. The, oh, you've got to get Ben here. Carson. This was right after I'd written that piece on him and the company called Manatech, which was more than a little unflattering because I thought Carson was um, mm-hmm. not being anyway so they're like please, uh, Jim you got to go over there and ask him to be to give us an interview I'm like yeah <laughs> he's he's not going to be eager to talk to me uh, <laughs> when suddenly the things that you write come back to haunt and, and so the idea like but the obviously on the one hand you're going to get a lot of people uh, some of it is like is, is I don't want to say fanboyish right but there's some of oh my goodness you got to come on our show you know the eagerness um, which doesn't go well with anything resembling investigatory journalism or, or anything like that. And I have that sense of uh, – yeah, I, you can I mean, I don't think it's you're, necessarily a place where you're charming. going – I'm charming. Aw. Did you want to repeat that? Because I, I didn't hear it clearly and I want to make sure our audience gets that as well. 
I'm charming. Trust you in an interview, um, and they may or may not trust me in an interview, and maybe they shouldn't. No, and I don't do. I obviously we don't do a lot of interviews on this show, but I think that anyone who knows the two of us actually well would suggest that I'm the one they should be more afraid of. Yeah, how's that uh, Donald Trump interview scheduling going, Jim? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably, I, I try not to make enemies. Um, I mean, it's so much fun because you do have access to a lot of different people from both political backgrounds, people who show up there to promote things that happen to be associated. It is a huge trade convention. It's a place to meet people, to network. And again, for us, it's a, you know we do get to fangirl a little bit, not necessarily with even the the politicos. But those that surround the politicos, people we like, people we admire their work, um, it's an opportunity for us to be shoulder to shoulder with them as well. And that's a lot of fun. You never know who you're going to run into at CPAC. And one of our uh, regular listeners, we interact with him on Twitter a great deal. He goes under the, the, under the Twitter name Occupy Ball Street. That's ball with a B as in the Powerball discussed in last segment. No, it's um, not ball like that. It's ball like cry. B-A-W-L. Oh, B-A-W-L. Yes, Okay. Uh, not Occupy Wall Street. He's very much on the opposite side of that. But So he's an uh, a ex- extraordinarily kind gentleman, but he has an extremely long uh, beard, the kind that would make people think that you're either Amish, the Taliban, or you own a duck call company in Louisiana. And this was <laughs> one of the Duck Dynasty, or maybe the entire Duck Dynasty crew may have been at CPAC. So it was extraordinarily fun to walk down the aisles and walk down the hallways with Occupy Wall Street who kept getting mistaken for one of the Duck Dynasty guys. <laughs> he's wearing sunglasses, and he's got his hat, his hat on. I can see that, actually. It's almost as though they have mimicked his look. Yes. He could very easily be a stunt double uh, for one of the, uh, uh, the, the Duck Dynasty guys. And so I'm, I, I said to him, one, I think this was our first conversation, was how many people have asked you for your, your autograph? And he's like, easily a half dozen, and he started doing it. Um, another one, which is a, a different gathering, was uh, I believe it was Oliver North was telling the story to, about uh, being at some convention uh, of veterans and somebody came up to him and said, oh, I, I, I read your book and I love everything you've done for, for all the veterans. Um, sir, can I get your autograph? And you know, Oliver North is feeling very flattered and, and feeling great. He's like, yeah, sure, sure, no problem. The guy takes out and he asks him to sign Tom Brokaw's book. <laughs> <laughs> so he signed it, Tom Brokaw. <laughs> So if you feel like you met Tom Brokaw at some veterans convention and uh, you see he signed your book. signature going to be worth more? Ollie North has signed it as Tom Brokaw. Suddenly that book is more interesting to me. (laughs) So some poor guy walking around with that stuff. I'm I'm curious about how often that has happened. I I have not been mistaken for any other uh, quasi-celebrity quasi Z-list conservative figure um, for better or for worse. But, Thank uh, God no one knows who I am so I don't even have that problem but when I walk around with Jim it's always fascinating to me because he's very modest as you guys probably have gathered and so we're walking around trying to get things done and people will come up to him almost immediately upon stepping foot in the convention center Jim, Jim Garrity, Jim Garrity and women come out of the woodwork men too ah. And they want to talk to blue-haired old ladies. You don't get a lot of, you know. Okay, guys, listeners, look, you can listen to them right now, okay? But understand this. 
like you know that he wants to be charming, but it's just not in his nature. Men so, want to be him. Women so, want to so, make so love to him. There's that constant struggle back and forth, <laughs> and that's something I look forward to and enjoy at every CPAC because he enjoys interacting with his fans and his listeners. He really does. But his just general nature and distrust of people is always just floating there in the back of his head. Whereas if you see me, I tend to be a hugger. So I'm like, hey, hugs, whatever. You know, and, and of course, but I am also the one. Jim's the guy that will, you know, stay in that conversation with you. I might be the one who kind of highs and dashes. <laughs> uh, when people at, listen, at home, you know, or li- listeners are saying, oh, you know, Jim wants to uh, uh, interact with you. You can't see the eh, face I'm making in the background. Um, <laughs> they can feel it, though. Well, they can it- sense it. For, for better or for worse. Um, and look, anyone who does stop and turns out to be nice to me and, and, you know, God bless you, I appreciate it. Usually if we have that interaction, you know, it could be the first time I've had that interaction during that day or it could be the 50th time I've had that interaction during that day. And it's more socially exhausting than anything. Okay, I don't and now across. I'm totally going to put Jim off by saying that if you see us together, please do come up with us, take a selfie <laughs> with us, tweet it out, use our hashtag TJAMS, and we'll be so happy. You can just see Darth Vader walking by going, the antisocial force is strong in this one. Well, that's one of my favorite parts is that you never really know what characters are going to show up. There's always going to be some founding fathers. Hopefully, there's going to be you know a Transformer or an Avenger or two. So that's, that's right. always we really ha- yeah Stormtroopers. We really yes. have had bizarre movie celebrities and in costumes. It, it starts to resemble Comic Con a bit more each year. And um, I'm okay with that. Oh, it definitely you know, it makes for great visuals. It definitely gives that that circus atmosphere. I, I won't. Last year, I, I had regret- the opportunity because of uh, I believe it was the NRA booth where I was able to actually go down and shoot fake guns at mm. fake targets. That's pretty cool. I mean, there were there were a lot of what I have noticed over the couple years that I've gone and from things that people have told me previously is that. The exhibitions, while there may be fewer of them or all contained in one area now, which is a little more convenient, they have gotten so much better quality. It's not just handing out a flyer. Um, They have kind of the best uh, kind of tchotchkes that you've seen around. (laughs) There you go. It's it's tchotchkes all all around. CPAC, go Uh, for the food. (laughs) Now, you might think we've discussed, uh, it's, you know, I'm waiting for the people to tell the romantic story of the time they met each other at CPAC. And maybe that would make a good chick flick someday. We'll be talking about your favorite chick flicks right after this. Chick a licking. I'd like. We're closed, lady. My cousin's dropped in. Lady, I'm mopping up. What are you mopping with? What am I mopping with? What kind of cleanup? A liquid. Mix some spick and span. Spick and span? Want to get home? It'll put power in the water. Go over where you just clean. But it's clean. Look, Spick and Span wouldn't leave all that greasy dirt. Hey, thanks, lady. If there's anything I could ever do for you. I have these cousins who dropped in. Spick and Span gets the dirt liquid cleaners leave behind. 98, 99, 100. 100 combs every day. Each armpit, each strand of hair gets individual attention. You know why? Because I care. That's why I use this. Old Spice Pro Strength. The finest street legal antiperspirant you can get outside of Mexico that's not poisonous. Welcome back to the Jim and Mickey Show. I am Jim Garrity, joined by Mickey White. 
And our Trivial Tuesday uh, contest or, or question out to the listeners and of the world uh, just seems to be growing each week. We've had a lot of responses on favorite and least favorite Christmas carols, uh, worst song of all time. And then Mickey put out um, the uh, surprising uh, question of what, is, what, what chick flick do you absolutely love or do you find yourself you know, unable to, to, to resist and Mickey, last time I checked, we had like almost like a, nearly 200 responses to this. And that's um, not counting all the people who decided to retweet it and offer their response. I was going to say, I, we're well over 1,000 responses to this already. Um, and I love that because I didn't set it up as a poll or anything. These are just tweets that are coming back and answers. Um, and a lot of really interesting and intriguing ones. Of course, you know, everyone wants to fight the diehard fight. So we have to get that out of the way first. It is both the best movie, the most it's the best Christmas movie, and apparently the best Valentine's Day movie. So we're just going to go ahead and settle that one up front and take care of that. What surprised me the most was um, there, were, there were several, including our friend Brad Thor, who suggested Alien was <laughs> his favorite chick flick. <clears throat> and so, you know, we had a lot of these kind of funny answers in the beginning and then people started to get really serious about it and then it got you could tell it was the tone had changed um and people were defending their movies and one one that caused the most controversy was say anything because first we had to determine whether or not that was a chick flick and the answer is yes it is and thus a lot more people like a chick flick as it turns out um but one of the things that surprised me the most was while you were sleeping showed up as did Sleepless in Seattle. So um, apparently people, you know, our listeners and our, and our friends and friends on Twitter enjoy films about people who are taking a nap. <laughs> you know, Sleepless in Seattle, I, I, was, I, was, I, I thought the only thing the question needed was maybe a slightly more precise definition of what made a chick flick. Um, because I like almost all of the, I will watch almost all of the Meg Ryan romantic comedies, but I have an observation. Those are six flicks, period. Okay. If it has okay. Meg Ryan, yeah, wouldn't and she that. doesn't have a gun. Okay, it's so a six flick. If I say Meg Ryan in When Harry Met Sally to you, what do you think of? What do you, it's a chick flick. I'll have what she's real? having. Oh, yeah, what what do I think of? I think of the scene, um, the the scene where she does the orgasm. I'll have what right? she's yeah, having. Everybody thinks of that. Hilarious comedy classic. I'll have what he, she's having. Yeah. Now think of what Meg Ryan does in Sleepless in Seattle uh, or French Kiss. Um, and then Billy Crystal did one, Forget Paris. Right? They all, they all, the, all These the all sound movies. like the same movie to me. Right? And <laughs> so in, in When Harry Met Sally, Meg Ryan was allowed to be funny. And mm. then somewhere along the line, they decided, no, she just had to be cute. And, and likable and the one that and the kind of is related to. Yeah. They kinda they kinda neutered her, I would argue, her her comedic instincts. I had so, no idea you had such strong feelings about Miss Meg. I McBride. do have strong about this, yes. And now well thank you for sharing with yeah. us. <laughs> because Jim, I feel like we've just seen another little insight into your soul. I had no idea. Um one of one of the movies that I recommended and threw in there and I would argue that Again, like you're saying, this is true comedy as well, but it's definitely a chick flick, is Mean Girls. That is arguably one of the best movies that I've ever seen. Like, as far as movies that I will rewatch, that I will watch when they're on TV, when I watch when they're on HBO, if I happen to be flipping and it's on, I watch it. You know what I would describe Mean Girls as just from my personal life? A horror movie. <laughs> if that's what <laughs> okay. girls are like, no wonder I did so lousy in school. Well, and I'm not saying that they're not like that. I'm, uh, there's a lot of hyperbole in that um, 
film. However, there is a lot of, you know, things that are based in reality and things that some of us could relate to. And some of us really, really like that movie. <laughs> There's a lot to like, you know, just, just, just for sheer um, a sense of nostalgia to a, to a better, quieter, simpler time when Lindsay Lohan was cute and sane and sober. <laughs> and uh, had such a bright future ahead of her, and now she has a bright future behind her. Mickey's scaring uh, me. I think she needs another roofie. Nice. I'm not going to roofie myself, although, to be fair, obviously, Mean Girls was a, a favorite movie of um, Adele's as well because she totally pulled a Katie Harrington at the end and broke her, <laughs> broke her Grammy up and offered to give it up to Beyonce. I don't think she meant to break it, though. Have we come full circle? There we go. So, obviously, look for the Trivial Tuesday questions on Tuesdays. The response just seems to get better and better. It gives us great material to discuss on the show. Uh, if we, we sometimes will mention your response and what we think are the uh, most thought-provoking responses to that. Just, Always getting and to see the entirety of the list of answers, go to the hashtag TJAMS. That's T-J-A-M-S. Stands for The Jim and Mickey Show. As you can always find us chatting on Twitter, I'm at Bias Girl, who is now verified, and Jim Garrity, who has been verified, of course. And, of course, at Big Dave P is how you find Dave Perkins, the guy who makes us sound so good every single week. Uh, we will be live at CPAC next week, so look forward to seeing you guys there and do listen for the live show. Um, we may have an opportunity for you to interact with us and be part of that live show. So a lot of exciting things coming down the pike. Keep an eye on our Facebook page for details. That's facebook.com forward slash Jim and Mickey show. I'm Mickey White. He is Jim Garrity. And you have been listening to the one and only Jim and Mickey show. They call you Lady Luck. But there is room for doubt. At times you have... A very unladylike way of running out You're on this date with me The pickings have been lush And yet before this evening is over You might give me the brush You might forget your manners you might refuse to stay And so the best that I can do is Be a lady tonight Luck if you've ever been a lady to begin with Luck be a lady tonight Luck let a gentleman see how nice a dame you can be I know the way you've treated other guys you've been with Luck be a lady with me 
A lady doesn't leave her escort It isn't fair It isn't nice A lady doesn't wander all over the room And blow on some other guy's dice Let's keep this party polite 